0: This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So the title of this talk is Wisdom in the Face of Modernity. Is Faith Reasonable? Or the Relationship Between Faith and Reason. Is faith, Faith Rational, you might ask. And I think we could start off by asking the question, how do we understand the act that a Christian makes when he or she says, I believe. And of course, every Christian, at, you know, if you go to Sunday Mass, you profess the creed, which begins with this statement: I believe in one God, etc. Credo. So is this uh, a leap in the dark? Is it an act of pure obedience to the church? The church tells you to believe. Um, is it an act of obedience to God? Uh, is it a pure act of entrusting yourself to God no matter what objections the mind might proffer? Some, some Christians consider faith to be primarily uh, an inner subjective conviction of this kind. So, it's a complete placing of my confidence in God or in the Bible. Okay, now... Maybe you yourself have expressed a thought like that before or had that thought. But of course, in a secular uh, culture, the, the, the culture in which we live, you might also encounter objections to this kind of act. And some people in our culture might ask, well, how is this Christian act of faith or the act of faith that a Catholic makes when you profess the creed, how is that any different from placing your trust in the Quran?" For example, is it effectively the same kind of act? Uh, what about the Book of Mormon? Like, are these basically just like different options for what you could place your trust in? Um, but it's effectively the same thing that you're doing in these different, uh, these different religions. It might seem like you could make an act like this with reference to any religious tenet whatsoever. Uh, or any claim that something has been revealed by a higher power. And some people clearly have put a rather radical trust in some pretty weird things. If you go through the history of the human race or even just the recent history, uh, you know, that, that maybe some of you would be familiar with. Um, I was just talking recently about, um, I was talking to somebody from Texas and he said, don't go to Waco. You know, there's Waco is just a bunch of weird people there. Now I had never thought of uh, thought of that. I I uh, would like to go to Waco actually. Uh, we have a Thomistic Institute chapter at Baylor. But he pointed out there was the uh, Branch Davidian cult in Waco. David Koresh. I don't know if you remember this. This was in the late 1990s. Uh, David Koresh claimed to be the Messiah, and he he got a whole bunch of people to do some pretty weird things, and it ended. Uh, It ended kind of very tragically and very sadly with a bunch of deaths. Um, Have you heard of Marshall Applewhite? Does that name ring a bell to any of you? Uh, This is maybe going back ancient history, but 1997, the Hale-Bopp comet was coming by, and Marshall Applewhite claimed that there was a spacecraft following the comet in the tail of the comet and that uh, when it passed near the Earth, Uh, It presaged the imminent destruction of the Earth. So the only way that you were going to be saved from that destruction was to be translated to the the spacecraft, which you could do by putting $5.75 in your pocket and then committing suicide, which he led a group of people in doing. Okay. Is this the same? Uh, So they, they made pretty radical act of trust in the claims he was positing. Is that the same as saying, I believe in the faith of the Catholic Church? Or are these acts uh, different? I mean, I would say it's right to reject a belief in like what Marshall Applewhite was preaching as crazy. It's crazy. It's not reasonable to do that. Don't do that. Is that what Christians are doing, or are they doing something like that? That's, in a way, maybe a first question. Um, In fact, I would say there are lots of misconceptions about what is distinctive about the Christian act of faith, which distinguish it from this kind of act that we would say is unreasonable or irrational or contrary to reason. I mean, to kill yourself, to be translated to a spacecraft based on this kind of claim of Marshall Applewhite is not reasonable, and a reasonable person should not do that. Believing in the Catholic faith or believing in the Holy Trinity is not like that. So how are these different? That's maybe what we could talk about, and this brings us to the relationship of faith and reason and why it is fundamentally reasonable to believe the Christian faith, and that this is it 's an act that actually reason might even in a certain way counsel you towards even if it cannot uh, even it ca- if it cannot bring you to the act of faith itself uh, so there are a lot of um, misunderstandings in this domain, and a lot of people posit a kind of false dichotomy between faith and reason, and probably you 're rather familiar with these kinds of things um, sometimes it 's resolved into the question about the Uh, alleged conflicts between faith and science. And that's a very interesting subject that we could get into maybe in the Q&A period. I won't really have a chance to talk about it now, but uh, there's lots to be said about um, misperceptions of what science is actually saying or what uh, at least Christianity says about some things with respect to science. Um, But I would say there are two fundamental mistakes that lead to false dichotomies or divisions between faith and reason Or faith in science. And so if you're looking at your handout, which is just really an outline of the talk that I'm giving, we're just on point uh, one, and now we're point one A, uh, B, C, D. That's what we're going to be talking about right now. So the the first, uh, I would say, fundamental mistake can be labeled uh, skepticism. And this is the claim, uh, it's rather familiar to most of us, that faith is in itself irrational or contrary to reason. Uh, and it would go something like this. Faith can't be proved, uh, and therefore, um, you know, you should only believe what can be proved by reason, and therefore, uh, faith is irrational. And people might point to something like the Marshall Applewhite episode or the David Koresh episode as an example of people who believe really crazy things and then do something that's obviously uh, obviously wrong or obviously disastrous even. The skeptic might also say, science has disproved religion. So there are certain things that religion believes that science has shown are not in fact the case as a matter of fact. Um, And this skepticism has a flip side or a mirror image, a kind of corollary, which from the perspective of a Thomist, uh, I would call myself a a Thomist, this is a disciple of St. Thomas Aquinas, um, a Thomist would regard this flip side as just as problematic as a kind of skepticism or rationalism, which we could call fideism. Uh, so, fideism is also problematic. It accepts the skeptical critique that there is a conflict between faith and reason, or that faith is fundamentally at least ah rational, if not irrational. Uh, but the Phineist says uh, that's not a problem uh, because, in fact, you can't really trust reason or we just will always prefer faith over reason. So a contemporary argument that you might have encountered before, someone saying, you know, the Bible is more reliable than anything science can demonstrate, and so whenever there's a conflict, we just disregard what reason is showing, and we say we just prefer the Bible. Um, And uh, so you might associate this view with certain strands of evangelical Protestantism or a fundamentalist approach that says, you know, we're just, we're not going to worry about science. We're just going to worry about the Bible, and that's enough. There are roots of this that actually go quite deep in the Protestant tradition. Uh, Reformers like Martin Luther claimed that reason was completely corrupted by the sin incurred by our first parents' fall from grace. So you think of our first parents depicted Adam and Eve in the Bible, Uh, their fall by sin leads to a situation where reason, which perhaps maybe in their original state would have had some kind of integrity, now it is so radically corrupted that it can no longer be trusted. And therefore, it will always lead you astray. So actually, there is a kind of sophisticated version of this, which just thinks reason is so corrupt that you can't really trust it. And in the end, you just have to rely on what faith teaches you or what the Bible uh, teaches you, and so you just have an unwavering uh, faith irrespective of what rational evidence might be, because the rational evidence cannot be relied upon. There's a second corollary, um, and this is that faith is purely subjective. Uh, So this is kind of all related. It's a kind of similar constellation of issues stemming from a belief that there is a dichotomy between faith and reason. So uh, you probably have also encountered something like this. I think it's a big problem for speaking about faith in the contemporary public square. And so it's 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 helpful to bring it out into the open. Is belief necessarily subjective? That is, it's true for me. Um, and in fact, I might say it's extremely meaningful for me. It's the only way I'm able to make it through the day. Or it's the only way I'm able to make sense out of my life and the world around me. And I see that, it's, that it coheres with uh, the truths that I learn in science and so forth. Uh, but it doesn't really have some kind of public content that I can use to persuade you uh, or that you have some access to. It's just a purely subjective inner conviction. And so it's purely interior and therefore purely subjective or private. And actually, if you've ever talked to a Mormon missionary, often they portray the act of faith something like this. So they will say that the the essence of faith is you pray the prayer to your heavenly father. And if you sense that it's true, then then it's true. And that's that's the that's the core of it. You know, it's just a an inner experience that no one else can really have any access to or can judge. So it might seem like this gives you a way out of the conflict between faith and reason, but I don't think it does. And I think actually it's it's in a way it's it's an impoverishment of an understanding of what the act of faith really is. Okay, all of these are kind of dimensions of this first misconception that there is a division between faith and reason. Then there is a, uh, a second error, which is in a certain way uh, somewhat distinct, is an error that the Catholic tradition calls rationalism, and it's in its strong form, it's the inverse of uh, the skepticism-fideism uh, dichotomy. So skepticism and fideism, on their own, uh, posit a dichotomy between faith and reason. Rationalism merges faith and reason. So it holds that you can not only defend the faith from attack by using rational arguments, but faith itself can be proved by reason or by history or by philosophical arguments or so forth. Okay, so note that we're not just talking about certain things that the faith holds to be true are provable by reason. Okay, that's a different position. So, for example, that God exists. Catholic tradition, as we'll we'll explain, has no problem saying that that can be believed by faith and also proved by reason. The claim is rather, uh, the rationalist claim, goes further than this. It says that everything that is knowable by faith is also knowable by reason or can be proved by reason. Now, those are like two important kind of dichotomies or ways of thinking about this. One is a distinction. The other is kind of merger. And this brings us to point 1C about medieval debates. Uh, It might be surprising to contemporary skeptics or a lot of contemporary people, but these very issues were very hotly debated in the Middle Ages. So the Middle Ages was not some time when, like, everyone just kind of blindly obeyed uh, the church's precepts or something like that. There was incredible intellectual ferment and diversity, and the medieval university often did a better job of examining these points and debating them than we do in the contemporary, uh, the contemporary uh, modern university. So, for example, in the 13th century, St. Bonaventure, the famous Franciscan uh, theologian and philosopher, was quite skeptical about what reason can accomplish apart from faith. Now, I wouldn't claim that he is a fideist. Uh, that would be far overstating the case, because actually you can really go quite far with St. in philosophy. But he did think in a certain sense that um, reason apart from faith was, was always going to be uh, extremely limited in what it could do. A generation later, in the early 14th century, another famous Franciscan, John Duns Scotus, argued in the other direction, emphasizing the rationality of faith, making faith largely reducible to reason, and dramatically curtailing the supernatural character of faith. Now, neither St. Fran- uh, uh, Bonaventure nor Blessed Duns Scotus fell into the kind of gross forms of fideism or rationalism that I've been describing. I just mean to say that you already see in the Middle Ages that there were like real disagreements about this, like the two greatest, arguably the two greatest Franciscan intellectual figures are on opposite sides of it. And you might say that in between them stands St. Thomas Aquinas. Uh, who I tend to prefer in this debate, as perhaps you might have posed, might, might have intuited. So, uh, St. Thomas Aquinas, who was a Dominican, uh, philosopher, theologian of the 13th century, contemporary of St. Bonaventure, uh, offers a classic approach to these questions of the relation between faith and reason. And it's an approach that centuries later, so like not in Aquinas's own day was it as clear as it is now, I think. Uh, that the Thomistic approach really characterizes the main line of Catholic theology, or you might say the Catholic tradition, in understanding, uh, what is an act of faith and what is the relationship between faith and reason. But Aquinas' view was kind of canonized over time, you might say, and especially in the First Vatican Council, which was in the late 19th century, responding to serious challenges of both rationalism and fideism, the, the church dogmatically defined a lot of things that are um, verbally very, very close to Aquinas' own formulation uh, of them. So now it's kind of become, you might say, the official doctrine. Uh, we're pretty close to it. And you find it in the encyclical of John Paul II, for example. So Fides et Ratio is going to uh, mirror Aquinas' teaching on this. Okay, so... Um, Now, I'd like to sketch a kind of broad overview of the landscape between, of the relationship between faith and reason, before then going into the, uh, there's a significant part of the talk about the reasonableness of faith. But I want to talk first about a kind of overview of, you might say, the modern landscape with respect to the relation of faith and reason. And this is the last page of your handout, page three. There's like a diagram here. And it's, you know, top to bottom. So you have at the top of the page, uh, divine revelation, and you have at the bottom of the page, natural human reason, right? So the question is, how are these related? Uh, And in fact, the classic Catholic understanding of how these are related is by by a series of, you might say, uh, bridges. So um, if we were to start from natural human reason, start from the bottom, uh, we could say, you know, there's lots that human reason investigates that doesn't directly pertain to the truths of faith or that doesn't directly pertain to what the church professes or uh, things like that. So you might just, it, no, it might have some bearing on it or it might lead you there eventually, but there's a lot of stuff that doesn't directly pertain to it. Um, and And yet there are certain fields of inquiry that the human mind is capable of that do kind of point you towards the truths also that are contained in divine revelation. And so there are certain domains of reason that may be more fruitful for you if you are, say, in the search of God. So, classically, you might say metaphysics. That's the uh, reflection on being as a whole or reality as a whole. And here you would find um, truths, philosophical truths about the need to posit a first cause of all things that exist. Uh, and uh, things, things like that, for example. You might also think about the, uh, the field of ethics as you ask the question, what is good? What should I do with my life? What is the meaning of my life? How should I live in order to be happy or to flourish? And these are questions that may lead you, they may start in, in a philosophical vein, they might quite easily lead you to religious questions and to beginning to turn towards, uh, towards divine revelation. But there also might just be um, scientific or cosmological questions, like as you ask, well, where did the uh, physical universe that we see come from? Like the planets and the stars and all of that. Uh, can we find the origins of the universe at some, uh, some absolute, having at some absolute beginning? Where is it headed? Uh, or you might think about um, the, the marvelous order that you find in all of the sciences, and these might lead you also to pose uh, some of these some of these questions. Um, if you go to the top of the page and think about divine revelation, then you can also actually find in divine revelation things that point you in a certain way to the relationship between divine revelation and human reason. So, There are some things in divine revelation which are, just strictly speaking, mysteries that the mind does not uh, fully penetrate. So the mystery of the Trinity, something like that. Uh, And nonetheless, the mind is able to grasp that there is a kind of internal intelligibility to the theological mysteries contained in divine revelation. Uh, So, you know, someone might object to the doctrine of the Trinity uh, by just using a mathematical claim like three can't equal one or something like that. Uh, but actually when you begin to dig into the, uh, the dogmas of the Trinity, you begin to realize that's not what the Catholic faith is, is proclaiming about this. And in fact, there's, there's a kind of internal coherence to the church's profession of faith about this. But even more, as you get into other mysteries like uh, the mystery of the Christ's presence in the Eucharist by transubstantiation, Um, you discover there's something uh, both very deep and very attractive, very beautiful, but also coherent. So you can see how it's possible to believe this, even if reason isn't able to prove to you uh, that it's true. So you can't argue from reason that transubstantiation actually occurs in the mass. Uh, You have to believe the words of Christ. But you can understand the church's teaching on transubstantiation and understand that it doesn't involve an absurdity or a contradiction and that it's within God's power to do it. Okay, then there's also the external illumination of the world by mysteries. You might think of uh, some of the things you read in um, G.K. Chesterton or C.S. Lewis where they they are able to see in Christian doctrines something that illuminates something of our human experience like our human experience of uh, sin or the sense that we have that the world should be perfect but somehow it's not and why is that or our kind of nostalgia or longing for some perfection that we've never actually experienced and that might be a kind of clue to us that there is in fact something something more reasons of credibility this is another very important traditional category that's the third thing on the list here um, these are signs given to uh, the reasonable person given to natural reason, you might say, that point to the reliability of some divine revelation. So classically speaking, we could say that the miracles that Jesus performs, the miracles of healing, for example, uh, I mean, he doesn't heal everybody in that he comes into contact with, but he does heal some people. And it seems that he does that, at least in part, in order to demonstrate the truth of what he is telling people. So it's a kind of divine testimony to the teaching that he is handing on. Now, it's more sophisticated than that, but there are uh, definitely the the miracles of Christ, and the greatest of all miracles, which is the, the resurrection of Christ, which point to the truth of faith that we hear in divine revelation about him. So, if someone is able to work those kinds of miracles, It is perhaps reasonable to believe them when they tell you that they are handing on divine teaching to you. But also the example of the saints, the perpetuity of the church, like the enduring fidelity of the church, this is a sign of credibility. And then lastly, at the kind of the lowest level, are the preambles of faith. This really is, in a certain way, the the best bridge between faith and reason. Because here you have truths uh, like the existence of God that reason can actually prove, and Aquinas famously uh, offers a number of proofs for the existence of God, they're philosophically demanding, and they're not always, you know, immediately satisfying to everybody. Um, He doesn't think that everyone will automatically uh, recognize their truth or their, or accept them, but he does think that um, they're theoretically important from below to be able to prove, using reason, that it's possible to believe in a God who speaks to us. And he thinks that that's in a certain way a preamble. It walks before the act of faith and it's necessary for the act of faith that it be provable that God exists. But this truth is also revealed to us by God. So you can arrive there from either end of the bridge, you might say. Um, But there are other mysteries uh, also, like the existence of the human soul, which um, Aquinas thinks you also can uh, argue for philosophically but also would be, would be something revealed, and so forth. You might think of the dignity of human life. So Aquinas, and this is the, the middle uh, point there in bold, Aquinas and Vatican I hold that there are two distinct orders. There's an order of reason, which is intelligible to the human mind, apart from divine revelation, and that philosophy can prove these truths, and that there also is the order of divine revelation, or the order of faith, which requires a supernatural revelation and the gift that God gives to the individual believer to believe it in faith. Uh, So that these two distinct orders are bridged, and you can, in a way, cross the bridge from either side. In the 19th century, you had rationalists, uh, and I described already something of this, but we we tend to know the 19th century rationalists um, better Uh, They would claim that human reason can demonstrate truths of revelation, so they don't don't get the balance right. You also have uh, what is labeled here traditionalism, or we could call fideism, that faith gives you all that you need. We've already talked about this. Two uh, other figures who might be helpful to just put on the map, Immanuel Kant. He basically holds that, uh, well, there might be a bridge there, but we can't know anything about it. So... The result is that you have a kind of agnosticism about uh, religious claims, and even the the sense that revelation itself is unintelligible to reason. You know, reason can't really get any traction there. Uh, Or, David Hume, there is no bridge. Um, So, atheism, materialism, this is simply the truth. That's all there is. Okay, so now I'd like to move to the next part of the talk, having kind of mapped out this map, and talk about the reasonableness of belief or the reasonableness of faith. And the first thing uh, I want to do is to clarify a little bit uh, what we mean by the act of faith or what is belief. And I think we can distinguish belief on a natural level a kind of natural act of belief, and then what I would call a supernatural act of faith, which is really what we're after, what we're trying to uh, get to, what a Christian does. Okay, so what is an act of belief on a purely human level? It's helpful just to distinguish that kind of act from other kinds of acts. Aquinas says that it is, and he he takes this uh, from Augustine, he says it is to think with assent, okay? So that means that there really is some proposition in your mind and you assent to it. That is, you you are saying, as it were, yes to the truth of this proposition, okay? So you, you actually think something in your mind and you assent to it, okay? So to illustrate this and why, this, this kind of helps us understand why on Aquinas' account or in the Catholic uh, sense, Faith is not principally or exclusively an inner conviction or still less a feeling. It really involves coming into contact with the truth with your mind. Now, it's not knowing in the proper sense of the word. I'll distinguish that in just a moment. But your mind does really come into contact with the truth. Okay, so let me give some examples of natural believing. We're not yet on the supernatural level. Suppose someone gives me a news article to read that he thinks is rather strange. So it could be something like, um, Elvis is alive. And Elvis is alive and he's hiding in Washington, D.C., something like that. I mean, uh, our singer from Nashville would probably like to meet Elvis if if it were possible, I imagine. Um, So suppose that you get this news article and after I've read it, my friend asks me, do you believe that? So what what is he asking me? He's asking me, um, do I think that the facts recounted in the article uh, comport with the possibilities of the real world, or whether it really happened, whether it's really true, whether I consider that that it really is true? Okay, and there's various answers that I could give, which illustrate the different ways that your mind can respond to a proposition. So I'm just using a fancy example to get us into a kind of philosophical distinction here. Um, so, I, if I were a kind of literal-minded philosopher, I would say, um, I don't know whether it's true. Uh, it seems to me that it uh, might well uh, not be. So, this is classically called doubt, okay? By doubt, it means I don't know that it's false, but I suspect that it's false, or I might even have some reasons to think that it's false, but they're not conclusive. Or I could say, oh, I, I imagine that the report is probably accurate. I mean, the Washington Post always uh, has accurate reporting. Um, although the opposite is not entirely out of the question. So this is what philosoph- philosophically Aquinas would call opinion. So it's the opposite of doubt in the sense that, uh, once again, you don't have knowledge. You just have a kind of probable judgment but this time it's affirmative instead of negative. Okay. So doubt, opinion. Uh, or you could say, um, uh, no, I, I don't believe it. Uh, or perhaps, uh, yes, um, I, I do believe it's true. But you, you could even say, um, well, I don't believe it's true. I know it's true because uh, actually, he's hiding out in my basement, right? So this would be a claim of knowledge. Like I know, Based and classically speaking, knowledge is a, is a claim to have direct personal knowledge. So it's not just someone told me about it, but I encountered Elvis. So I know it. But you could also say, I do believe it, I just believe it. Okay, these are the four classical modes of the way your mind can relate to a proposition. Doubting, opining, or supposing, knowing, or believing. Okay, what's distinct about believing? That's that's what we're we're after. How is believing different from these others? And uh, let me uh, give an example um, of believing, which I think it's kind of an, an interesting example and helps illuminate something about it. Uh so this is not that far from real life. Suppose that um you have a, a brother who's a journalist and he's writing stories on ISIS and he's taken captive by ISIS and being held incommunicado in Iraq or in Syria or something like that. Okay, these these kinds of things do happen. And uh one day you get a knock on your door and it's a um it's a man who says, I too am a journalist who is captured by ISIS and I was held in incommunicado with your brother and he's still in captivity but I was released and I come to bring you a message from him which I memorized uh, while we were in prison together. Okay, would you be interested in this message? Absolutely you would be. But you would also probably want to know is this like a prank or something like that? Like you'd, you'd wanna ask for some confirming information to get a sense of whether this guy is credible. Okay, so suppose he satisfies you with all of the things that he's able to tell you about your brother, and he, you know, he you check out that he really is a journalist, and so that, you know, and, and he was really in Iraq. Okay, so it's it's believable that he has a message from your brother. Um and at the end, you know, so he he tells you the message. It's something that you're highly interested in. And means a great deal to you, in fact. It might change your life, what, what the message that he brings you. Um, suppose that at the end, you know, you're sitting at your, at your dining room table and he finishes his story. And, uh, and you say, um, well, you know, thank you very much. Uh, what you've said has really impressed me. And, uh, you know, I'm inclined to think that it's probably accurate. But you see, I have no way of checking on your message. What would he say to you? He would say, "You didn't hear what I said. I'm, I, I, I'm bringing you a message from your brother. It's, it's true. You've got to believe me." And you say, "Oh, oh, yes. You know, um, I have full confidence in you. I'm, I'm quite prepared to believe you." But you see, the problem is, I can't be absolutely certain of what you're telling me. I can only have a kind of probab- probable judgment about what you're telling me. It's like, you know, maybe. 95 percent true he would say you just don't believe me like what you need to do is believe me that this is true and he would be right if he says you don't believe me because we kind of understand that it's a very different response to say i'm like 99 percent sure that you're telling me the truth and saying i believe you what's the difference the difference is that when you say i believe you you make an unqualified act of assent to the truth. And you no longer are entertaining the possibility that it's not true. You simply are now regarding it as true. Okay, but, but you don't see the truth of it. You don't see the evidence for why it's true. You have a good reason to believe the messenger. And you simply take the messenger's word as speaking the truth to you. Okay, so you see that it's to think the message with assent. So you assent entirely to the message. There's no reservation. So doubt is in a way not possible to someone who is believing in this sense, in this philosophical sense. Uh, And yet you don't have evidence. Notice also that you have now a relationship with the messenger. So now... uh Part of the the issue there is that you are personally invested in his truthfulness. Okay, so that's actually very helpful. Belief involves a truth to which you assent, and believing someone involves a relationship to a witness on whom you rely. Now, it makes perfect sense for us To rely on human beings in this way. And I mean, sometimes we do it on things that are life and death, but often we do it in very simple ways all the time. We don't even entertain the possibility that the person is lying to me or that what they're telling me uh, might be false. I just believe what they say. And this is not unreasonable. In fact, it's a very reasonable thing to do you could even say that it would be unreasonable to refuse to believe in a kind of categorical way, to begin to say, I will only accept as true things that I can establish the truth of myself directly. Um, so if you've ever, uh, you know, some of you probably have been to Rome, I assume, and perhaps some of you have not. Th- those who have not been to Rome, I would be surprised if you had a serious doubt about whether Rome is really a city in Italy, you know, but this is the kind of thing that you haven't experienced directly by your own uh, by your own experience. And so but but it's perfectly reasonable to trust all the people who tell you uh, that Rome is a city like that. Okay, this brings us to supernatural faith. Okay, so that what we've been talking about up till now is just faith on the natural level or be- the act of belief as distinguished from doubt. And it's especially helpful to see that faith involves an unconditional assent that comes not from the intellect's grasp of the truth of the proposition, but rather from the will deciding to believe the person, believe the witness. Okay, in supernatural faith, according to Aquinas, the act of a Christian who says, I believe, is making an, an act that is analogous to that act of natural believing. But it's different in a few important ways. Uh, Aquinas thinks that this act is properly supernatural for several reasons. And and, uh, I've got uh, listed here on the next page, page two, six ways that faith is properly supernatural, according to Aquinas. But before going through that, let me just uh, quickly flag uh, the, the Roman numeral just before this, Roman numeral three, which is on page one, about the relationship between faith and reason. So unlike believing a messenger like a journalist who released POW, when you believe God, you are believing the source of both faith and reason. Okay, so if God is speaking to you, He is also the author of the power of reason. So Aquinas says, God is the most trustworthy revealer to you. And since God is the source both of faith and of reason, there could not, in principle, be a contradiction between them. So Aquinas has a famous account of this, which is reproduced in uh, the First Vatican Council, and you also find it in John Paul II uh, in his um, Fides et Ratio encyclical. Um, Since God is the source of both of these lights of the mind, uh, a contradiction between them is not possible. So, anytime there appears to be a contradiction, you know either that your reason is not uh, concluding its argument, you have made a mistake somewhere in your logical argumentation, Um, or perhaps you have misunderstood the claim of faith. Uh, Aquinas doesn't really uh, go down that road because he thinks the church is is there to interpret the truths of faith for you. Um, but in any case, you can be confident that reason or science will never be able to disprove a truth of the faith properly understood. And that actually is very liberating because it gives a great confidence in the light of faith and in the pursuit of truth by way of reason. So there should be no reason to be worried that science is going to disprove the Bible. Science is not going to disprove the Bible. Uh, in fact, science is only in the end going to confirm it if you do your science well. Now, that doesn't mean that every scientist is going to give you results or you know, explain something that is compatible with, uh, uh, with the faith. Sometimes scientists have their own agenda or their own uh, kind of um, narrow tunnel vision. Uh, but nonetheless, in principle, that should not be a problem. And more than this, we could say that the truths of faith are believable insofar as natural reason is able to show us uh, that they don't involve a contradiction. And if someone claims that they involve a contradiction, we should be able to show that that proof doesn't work. So if someone claims, for example, that God doesn't exist and you can prove that God doesn't exist, you'll be able to show that that proof never works. Uh, never actually works, or for that matter, that, that God is not trained or something like that, something thats put in properly to, to reason. Okay, as, as I conclude, let me just go through and talk about, uh, very briefly, these reasons that you have on, on page two, why, according to Aquinas, faith is properly or essentially supernatural. It's supernatural because it disposes us to an end that exceeds the capacity of our nature. What does that mean? It means that by faith, you are actually raised up to begin to share in the very life of God, to share in the, in the knowledge of God. That's something that is more than anything this world can give you. Secondly, it cannot be acquired by human action. So no amount of moral effort can generate an act of supernatural faith. It has to come from God. It is infused into the mind, you might say, by God. God sheds his light on you, and it moves you to believe. It is essentially supernatural. Further, when you receive the gift of faith, you receive a certain supernatural light that strengthens the mind so that you, even if you cannot uh, elaborate the reasons why this faith claim is true, you have a kind of sense of its truth, so you you do gain a kind of Aquinas to call it a connaturality with the truth. There's a kind of you're, there's something about that truth that is simpatico to you, or you become in a certain way simpatico to that to that truth. The fourth point: the object of faith is God Himself. You really do know not just truths about God. You know God who is speaking to you. Ultimately, God is the witness. There are human witnesses too, like the apostles, for example, or the the preacher, the church's apostolic tradition. Um, Fifth, God moves you to the act of faith. And sixth, uh, the divine persons actually begin to dwell in you as you make the act of faith, as you come to know God and love him. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit come to dwell in you. You become a dwelling of God and an adopted son or daughter of God. So this bears fruit in salvation. So faith really is true. I mean, sometimes Catholics are, are hesitant to talk about being saved by faith because uh, in the Protestant polemics, you find Protestant preachers, Martin Luther famously saying you're saved by faith alone. It's not true to say you're saved by faith alone. Catholic teaching would say you're saved by faith with hope and charity. But you are really saved by faith. So it's not a problem to say that faith in a certain way when it comes with charity uh, is the substance of our salvation and the substance of the Christian life. So in the end, the faith that a Christian, the act of faith that a Christian makes to say profess the creed on Sunday is not like an irrational belief of someone who just believes a crazy person. It is not uh, something that is contrary to reason. It's in fact a very reasonable thing to do, especially when you think of the motives of credibility and the coherence of the Catholic faith, all of the miracles, the uh, continuous witness of the church's teaching down over the centuries. Uh, it's also uh, reasonable, um, insofar as God is giving you something in that in that moment, and drawing you into life with Him, so there's something properly supernatural that is different from uh, a natural act of just believing, uh, just anyone who who walks down the street. So thank you very much.